0: Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Thursday, July 1st, and this is your FT News Briefing. Private equity firms broke a new record for deal-making in the past six months, and China's top ride hailing service yesterday began trading in the US. Plus, in the UK, there were nightmarish predictions for what would happen to channel ports after Brexit.
1: All these lorry drivers would be stranded, uh, unable to uh, get to a service station as the road network imploded. We'll
0: talk to the FT's public policy editor Peter Foster about what
1: really happened.
0: I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. Private equity firms had their busiest half year on record from January to June. Group struck more than 6,000 deals, totaling more than $500 billion. Blackstone was involved in three of the 10 largest private equity backed deals, according to data from Refinitiv. CEO John Gray said Blackstone was benefiting from low interest rates. He added rising inflation was the biggest risk on the investment horizon. Wider corporate dealmaking also rebounded from the early days of the pandemic. This quarter, overall transaction volumes hit an all-time high of $1.5 trillion. It's the fourth consecutive quarter that has topped the $1 trillion mark. China's top ride-hailing app, Didi Chuxing, began trading on the New York Stock Exchange yesterday. It's the largest Chinese company to hit the U.S. since Alibaba. Didi's share price ended the day 1% higher than its IPO price of $14. The FT's Miles Krupa describes Didi's debut and investor thinking about the company as mixed.
2: Didi has a really strong position in the Chinese ride-hailing market with about 90% of the market. It's way more dominant there than Uber is in the US, for instance. That is an index to Chinese economic growth into the future, kind of like Alibaba, which was the last really massive uh, Chinese listing in 2014. On the other hand, there are a lot of regulatory uncertainties in China at the moment around big tech companies. Uh, We've seen what happened to Jack Ma and Alibaba. They've also taken a look at ride hailing and freight, which are big focuses of Didi and its competitors, and that certainly was weighing on investors' minds.
0: So, Miles, does Didi plan to do anything with these funds it's raising, anything maybe in the U.S.?
2: It doesn't appear they're going to do anything in the U.S. Basically, because of the way tech markets have developed, Uber and Lyft dominate in the U.S., Didi dominates in China. Didi is certainly expanding into the rest of the world. It's still very early, though. They are also pouring a lot of money into developing electric vehicles and autonomous uh, driving systems. That will be a huge capital expenditure for them going forward, and I expect they'll use a good amount of the proceeds for that.
0: That's the FT's venture capital correspondent, Miles Krupa. Britain and the EU are still adjusting to their newfound separation. I mean, it's only been six months since Brexit. And if you recall, there were dire warnings about what would happen at English channel ports. Critics predicted absolute mayhem. Monster gridlock at the port of Dover and the nearby motorways.
1: And that region of England, Kent, is known as the Garden of England. And people started talking about it as the toilet of England because uh, all these lorry drivers would be stranded, uh, unable to uh, get to a service station as the road network imploded. That's the FT's public
0: policy editor, Peter Foster. He's been looking at why these nightmare scenarios never happened, and he joins
1: me now. Hey, Peter, how's it going?
0: Yeah, good. So what happened? What What are the reasons things went
1: right? One is that many uh, traders stayed away, so they stockpiled before the January 1st deadlines when the new trade rules came in, had enough in their warehouses not to need to trade, so there were many less lorries on the road. Um, the government Made a big effort also to communicate with the lorry drivers and with the companies and the haulage operators. They made them fill out something called a Kent access permit. It made hauliers think. So many less hauliers showed up at Dover with incorrect paperwork, Uh, only about 8% in January, which was much lower than the government was expecting. Uh, So if you put those two things together, lots of stockpiling and better than expected uh, conformity with the new rules, uh, then you ended up with uh, no queues at all, really.
0: Now, this is on the UK
1: side, as I understand it from reading your
0: story. uh, The French had quite a bit to do with the smooth rollout as well.
1: Yes, indeed. You know, for this story, we spoke to the British government, to the French government and to haulage uh, operators and logistics firms. And all three of those groups independently praised the French for two reasons. One is the French created a very efficient computer system where you've got a barcode and it checked that you had the right customs documents, scanned them into the lorry uh, and to the cockpit, and then it gave you a green or an orange light on the ferry. And that system kept the traffic moving. And I think the second thing is... There was some fear, I think, among British officials that the French might be very pedantic with their customs checks. to sort of make a point that leaving the European Union wasn't cost-free. But as it turned out, the French were very pragmatic. They didn't want the port of Calais on the other side of the channel uh, from Dover to be clogged with lorries any more than we wanted Dover to be clogged with lorries. And the French were feeding back uh, common problems that British lorry drivers had with their documents, feeding them back to the British government that was passing them back to the logistics operators so that each iteration of the travel cycle, less and less mistakes got, got made. So Peter, we're talking a lot about the
0: ports and the success that we saw there. What about beyond the ports?
1: It's a very good question because What the government did was it actually ensured that there were no TV network pictures on the news of the motorways of southern England clogged with lorries to show that Brexit had been a disaster. But what they actually managed to do was to force all of that uh, disruption back into the factories, back into the logistics depots. So they actually experienced the disruption, but they just experienced it away from the public eye, which was exactly what the government wanted, because the government wanted to prove that despite all the economists and the trade experts saying you it would be a very bad idea to erect all these barriers to trade, that actually it wasn't going to be as bad as all that. So they kept the disruption out of the ports, which was a really clever piece of media and expectation management on behalf of the British government.
0: So there was a lot of disruption from Brexit, but it it just sounds like officials did a a really good job of making sure it wasn't out in the open. Um, We should also mention that this logistical success we're talking about or the perceived logistical success that we're talking about here took place at a time when ports weren't at full capacity because tourism wasn't a factor and tourism really hasn't returned to normal yet.
1: No, indeed. So if you go to Dover and you stand on the White Cliffs overlooking the port, you'll actually see that the port of Dover, although it's the main arterial link for trade, it's actually really quite a small port. It's only got five passport lanes. Now, because of COVID-19, All of the travel that you would expect of passenger vehicles, getting on ferries, people going on their holidays, up to 20,000 cars a day hasn't happened. So the lorries, all the freight, all the trucks have had the port to themselves. They've been able to use all five of those lanes. And I think the worry is... If we get summer holidays, if COVID-19 restrictions lift and all those Brits who like go camping in Brittany and Normandy, the lorries are going to have to share the passport lanes with the cars. And under the new rules, it's not just freight that faces new new rules and restrictions. All British citizens who go into the European Union... And that means you're going to need much longer queues. I think there are uh, people who run the port of Dover who we spoke to, people who run the, the traffic systems in Kent who are absolutely bracing for belated queues after the fact, uh, unless Dover can build more passport booths, uh, uh, get the traffic moving better. But there may yet be disruption ahead.
0: Well, we'll be keeping an eye on that. Thanks, Peter. Peter Foster is the FT's Public Policy Editor. And before we go, we've got the ending to a story we did a little while back. Remember we told you about some news regarding Tim Berners-Lee? He's, of course, the guy who's famous for writing the original source code for the World Wide Web, and he decided to auction off an NFT for a digital artwork that showcases that code. NFT, or non-fungible tokens, are like digital certificates of authenticity. Well, yesterday was the auction at Sotheby's, and it sold for... Nearly $5.5 million. That's $2.5 million more than what a collector paid for the NFT for the very first tweet, the one sent by Twitter founder Jack Dorsey. But the Berners-Lee NFT netted way less than the $69 million someone paid earlier this year for the NFT to a piece made by the artist Beeple. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant.